Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. 40 college football bowl games plus the college football playoff, the last month of NFL football, college and pro basketball, hockey, all of that and more is coming at you during this holiday season and Bet Online Sportsbook has you covered. All of the odds, props, promos and parlays. Use our promo code BLEAV50, that's B L E A V 50 to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is a fantabulous December 20th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in. However, and whenever it is that you may be listening, we have got a fantabulous show coming at you here today. We are going to talk about the Dolphins and the Bills and the AFC East, because there are uh, some interesting topics to break down, especially because those two teams played quite a fascinating game, and because it didn't have the bullshit entertainment value of f- football just being incredibly entertaining, like, I don't know, the, Ra- the Raiders winning a football game because of a backwards lateral by Jacoby Myers, which, by the way, if you're listening to NFL Monday, we finished recording that last segment right before the Patriots and Raiders play that ended up being the craziest ending to a football a, a, a once in a lifetime ending to a football game is how I will describe it that once in a lifetime ending to a football game happened before we got to uh, put out NFL Monday so <laughs> whoopsies on our part I didn't go back to correct it I just let it publish and let all of those conversations go into the ether because uh, no way were we going to not talk about 33-point Kirk Cousins and have that get bumped for the end of the Raiders game. So we're going to talk about Bills and Dolphins because amidst all the chaos of last weekend, whether it was Jaguars pick sixes to beat the Cowboys or laterals by the Raiders or Kansas City and Houston, Houston getting outgained by 300 yards against Kansas City and still almost winning in overtime, or, or again, 33-point losses. We missed out on Miami and Buffalo talk. So we're going to do Miami and Buffalo talk coming up later on in the show. But first, we have an A block. This is a very like John Olivery type show today where we're going to do a 10-minute A block and then a 40-minute B block or a 20-minute A block and a 30-minute B block, whatever it ends up looking like. We're going to have a very two, A block, B block segment of the show today. I want to start off talking about basketball because... 
I don't know when we can weave in basketball talk that's like actual X's and O's analysis basketball talk. We're going to have Morgan from Australia come on and we're just going to do kind of the fun banter basketball talk, like uh, talking about the, the losers that are the Boston Celtics that Morgan roots for or laughing at the Philadelphia 76ers or laughing at the Miami Heat or laughing at how bad the Chicago Bulls are. Whatever it ends up being, we'll we'll have our fun entertainment value basketball talk. But I wanted to do an X's and O's basketball segment because one player in particular has piqued my interest in the 2023 basketball season. And a, a lot of my interest goes back to a couple years ago, and all of it will make sense the more we talk about this player in a second. But before we get to him... Nikola Jokic, I just have to say, we're recording this on Monday, and um, I was looking up player efficiency numbers for a podcast that uh, Juju and I do on the Slump Buster YouTube, because I'm boring. I I subscribe to the theory that whoever leads the league in player efficiency rating should win the MVP most years in the NBA. Now, there's some weird examples, like Anthony Davis right now is currently second in player efficiency rating, but he's going to miss, like, uh, at least 40% of the season. So I think like extenuating circumstances will say, okay, yeah, Anthony Davis probably isn't MVP. Same way like Thomas Bryant is ahead of Ja Morant in player efficiency rating, but Thomas Bryant only plays 16 minutes a game and he's only played in 15 of the Lakers 30 games this season. So like there's extenuating circumstances that explain that one. But basically, I subscribe to the theory that player efficiency rating is the statistic that most correlates to who the best players in the sport are based on the eye test for a single season. Never perfect, just a good rating for who is the most efficient player in the league putting up gaudy statistics and putting up incredible uh, numbers. Like true shooting percentage is another statistic that strongly correlates to this number. And guess who among the star players in the league has the best true shooting percentage? That's right, Nikola Jokic. He's 13th in the league, but everyone below him is averaging fewer than... 14 minutes or sorry 19 minutes per game and therefore I'm gonna go as far to say that Nikola Jokic is uh, the only person here who is a starter just some of the names real quick Dwight Powell Josh Green Yuta Watanabe Daniel Gafford Walker Kessler the only starter in the top in the top uh, true shooting percentage lists is Nikola Jokic Nikola Jokic best true shooting percentage among starters in the NBA and the best efficiency rating in the league, Nikola Jokic, 2023 MVP, three years in a row, probably deserves it. Put up 40 points, 27 rebounds, and 10 assists in the game yesterday. Dude has just been absolutely ridiculous this year. So shout out Nikola Jokic. I was looking up some statistics and recognizing, yeah, Nikola Jokic should be the NBA MVP for the third year in a row. And if it's not him, it should probably be either Luka or Giannis. Maybe we could get to Jason Tatum later, but uh, the Boston Celtics have really fallen off a cliff in the month of December, and they're kind of working through their problems. I don't think Jason Tatum has a chance to win MVP this year, but if they have the best record in the league, maybe he just might. So the player I actually wanted to talk about here in the A block, other than Nikola Jokic, is Devin Booker. I have been incredibly, incredibly fascinated by Devin Booker here in the 2023 season because Devin Booker is 
the best player on the team that for the last two years has been the best team in the Western Conference. And now we're going on year three, and it seems like everyone is kind of, they've kind of peaked, shall we say, in terms of their successes and the core of their team being together. Chris Paul is now 38 years old and injured. Uh, DeAndre Ayton had big beef with Monty Williams, not just like whispers about it, like publicly acknowledged beef. Um, They didn't talk to each other for months after the season ended. Monty basically benched Ayton at the end of the game and said it was an in-house decision. Ayton wanted to go to the Pacers, and then uh, Phoenix ended up matching his offer, and I don't know how long Ayton is going to stay in Phoenix, but they couldn't lose him for nothing as a former number one pick. So... Phoenix ends up having that situation. Jay Crowder, who is a key piece of their finals team, he's basically said, I'm not playing for this team ever again, but they can't find a partner and they don't want to cut him. So he's just kind of in the Al Horford on Oklahoma City. We're going to send you home and work out a trade purgatory. It seems like everything is falling apart at the seams, behind the seam in Phoenix, before you add in Baxter Holmes's story from ESPN. Baxter Holmes is the reporter who initially uh, did the reporting on Robert Sarver. On Monday, uh, Baxter Holmes releases a new report talking about how people within the Suns organization are looking for a measure of accountability for people who are still in power within the organization. I'm going to read Baxter's tweet real quick because I haven't gone through um, the entire article yet. And what I wanted to detail from Baxter Holmes is what he, the, the reporting that he did about when the others are going to be held accountable. Uh, this is what he says. Quote, there are still senior executives who are currently on staff that have helped to foster this toxic workplace for the last 15 plus years with no culpability for their actions, says one Phoenix Suns employee. Uh, he follows up. This is a twit, uh, tweet thread. This story is based on interviews with more than two dozen current and former Suns employees and confirms specific accounts of alleged misconduct by Suns president Jason Rowley and other Suns executives in the NBA's report from September 2022. We also uncovered additional allegations including verbal abuse of employees, mistreatment of pregnant and postpartum employees, and other instances of retaliation and intimidation. Says one Suns employee, Sarver created the culture, but the executives upheld it. In the NBA's punishment letter to the Suns, provisions are listed. One states that the team's interim governor, Sam Garvin, cannot remove three top Suns executives without Sarver's written approval. Two of the execs, employees say, were drivers of the alleged misconduct. Two of the top executives within the Suns organization were drivers of the alleged misconduct. Rowley, who again we mentioned a second ago, um, this is the, um, the, the, when we say Rowley, we're talking about the Suns president, Jason Rowley. Rowley staunchly defended Sarver ahead of the the November 2021 ESPN report and after the NBA began its investigation, but a team source says Rowley was informed by Sarver the NBA's report contained executive misconduct directly pertaining to him. And so... With all of that going around the Phoenix organization, with some disdain between... I mean, Chris Paul is generally not the most well-liked guy ever, but some disdain between DeAndre Ayton and Jay Crowder and Frank Kaminsky leaving the team, uh, even though they wanted to retain him. There's clearly 
animosity existing around the Phoenix Suns organization, not helped by the fact that Chris Paul has been out for a good portion of the season. And yet, Phoenix continues to put up a good record because they still have the the large level of talent they have on the team. And maybe they'll end up being a five seed in the end anyways, and you'll see the regression from best team in the Western Conference. And when I say best team in the Western Conference, I mean 2021, number two seed, wins the Western Conference Championship, loses in the NBA Finals, even though they were up two games to zero against Milwaukee. After coming within two games of winning the NBA Finals, the following season win over 60 games and finish with the number one record in the Western Conference. Consistently over the past 24 months, call it, Phoenix has been the best team in the NBA. The number one seed that year uh, in 2021 was the Utah Jazz. We've seen what's happened to the Utah Jazz in the time since. The Los Angeles Clippers were the team they played in the Western Conference Finals in 2021. We've seen what's happened to them since. They missed the playoffs last year. Kawhi tore his ACL. And the Warriors, who ended up winning the championship, the years in between have been sandwiched with this year's team looking like a play-in team and the year before missing the playoffs. So... Phoenix, in a Western Conference that has not been the superior conference the past four seasons, Phoenix has been the best team in the conference. And Devin Booker has been the best player on that Phoenix Suns team. Which is really interesting because a player of Devin Booker's skill set usually needs the best of circumstances in order to be the best player on a championship team. Now, you could argue that having Chris Paul as a teammate might qualify as best of circumstances. Devin Booker was, at the time, 25 years old, uh, sorry, 24 years old during the Suns' championship run of 2021, and so Devin Booker is now 26 years old and in the peak of his basketball prime. He is a Hall of Fame basketball player, makes the All-Star team every year, and Devin Booker is one of the best call it a handful of players from his generation. Which generation are we talking about? We're talking about players roughly drafted between 2014 and 2018, shall we say. Because Devin Booker exists in this... What we're talking about is players who are in their physical primes right now. So who are the best players in the sport who are currently in their physical primes between 24 and and 29 years old. We're talking about Giannis, Jokic, Joel Embiid, Anthony Davis, and then a weird in-between of Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum's a tweener because he's 25 years old. And then you get to Devin Booker. And Devin Booker is not the caliber of player of Giannis is not the caliber player of Jokic and is not the caliber player of Joel Embiid. And yet, because of the team that has been built around him, Devin Booker is allowed to be the best player on a team that goes to the NBA Finals and finishes with a number one seed in the Western Conference. Which, by the way, similar to what we talked about with uh, with a few years ago, the uh, Toronto Raptors. The Toronto Raptors ended up winning the championship, but 
Kawhi Leonard, being the best player on that team, was good enough to win the championship. And for like six months, we all regarded Kawhi Leonard as the best player in basketball. And Kawhi Leonard has never quite been that level of player post-pandemic and post a bubble because he has not played as many games as, as you might think of someone in their physical prime. And so what I found interesting about Devin Booker this season is that amidst everything going on in Phoenix, Devin Booker has put up some ridiculous stat lines where back on uh, back on November 18th, this is when I first kind of got tuned into what was happening with Devin Booker. Uh, Devin Booker put up 49 points in a loss against the Utah Jazz. I saw that, I was like, wow, Devin Booker going for 49 is something that we're used to seeing the gigantic statistical numbers from Devin Booker, but never does it look like 49 points. And even in that game, he shot two for nine from the three-point line. And I saw that, I was like, wow. So he's taking a ton of shots and scoring a ton of points. It's super interesting. I, I kept that in the back of my mind, kept, you know, not thinking about it. And then 10 days later, Devin Booker played against the Sacramento Kings. I work covering the Sacramento Kings. And in the game against the Kings, Devin Booker put up 44 points, shooting over 60% from the field, and going 9 for 9 at the free throw line. And... That was the second time where it clicked in my mind, okay, he's got now multiple 40-point games. Uh, a few games before, he had a, 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 th- a stretch of 30-point games to start the season. I remember I was uh, first getting into the, the season, and they were playing, I think it was Golden State, when they just blew the doors off of Golden State on national television. And uh, Booker ended up getting pulled early in the game, but he had 34 points. And I remember seeing that. I was like, wow, okay, Devin Booker is the player I remember him being at times during 2021 and parts of the 2020. His 2022 and 2021 numbers are very similar. Like Devin Booker maintained his level of production year over year between the finals run and last year. It was when everything fell apart for Phoenix that it was like, okay, now I remember what happened in the finals. But going forward, so literally the next game after Sacramento, two days later, Devin Booker goes for 51 points in three quarters against Chicago. And then the very next game, Devin Booker went for 41 against Houston. Over a four, uh, over a three-game stretch, Devin Booker was averaging, while averaging 36 minutes per game, which is slightly more than you might anticipate for an average NBA player, but not because he was playing large amounts of minutes. Devin Booker, for a three-game stretch, was averaging 45 points a game for the Phoenix Suns. And that was the moment when I really started getting fascinated. And this was now two weeks ago that this was going on. And so I kind of let the sample size play itself out. You know, uh, they got blown out by Boston. Uh, That game against the Pelicans where Chris Paul had gotten hurt and Zion did the reverse dunk thing and that got everyone mad uh, on Phoenix. And Phoenix kind of became the Herb team of the league. New Orleans and Phoenix kind of have this weird budding rivalry starting. And then on Saturday, in the midst of watching Miami and Buffalo, Devin Booker put up 58 points against the New Orleans Pelicans, 
He ended up shooting 35 shots in the game, went 6 of 12 from 3, which is really good. Making 6 of 12 three-pointers is really, really good. Went 6 of 12 from 3. And then I looked up, and it they needed every single one of the 58 points because they won by 4 points. They won by 4 points against the Pelicans, despite 58 points from Devin Booker. And in fairness, they were down big in the game and they had to make a comeback uh, at the very end. But even still, like 58 points to win by four was... uh, And I went back and watched part of this game and man, Devin Booker was fantastic. And his efficiency rating, uh, even though he took a lot of shots, his plus minus was still at a plus 11 compared to the bench unit, which struggled for Phoenix. And Chris Paul had just come back from injury and... They didn't have DeAndre Ayton for this game, but even still, it was it was fantastic to watch. And so Devin Booker this season is responsible for four of the 12 highest scoring games in the NBA so far this year. They were the games I just mentioned. The, the 44 points against Sacramento, the 49 points against Utah, the 51 and three quarters against the Chicago Bulls, and then putting up the uh, 58 points against New Orleans, which doesn't even add in that he's also had two more 40-point games this season in addition to those that are four of the 12 highest scoring performances of the season. Devin Booker has been incredible in spurts during this season at scoring the basketball. And so I wanted to look up, you know, Devin Booker's not in any MVP conversation by any stretch of the imagination. So it's there's no question like the the thing about Devin Booker his entire career is like he is he scores a lot of points and his teams don't usually win that was our first introduction to Devin Booker was the 70 point game in which they lost by double digits when the Phoenix team was really really bad and Devin Booker putting up gigantic scoring numbers but getting snubbed from the all-star team because Phoenix didn't have a good record And then the bubble was when the turning point happened for Booker, when it all of a sudden became, now he's scoring a lot of points, now he's hitting big shots, and Phoenix is going 8-0 in the bubble in their first three games, and then they ended up losing to um, Portland in order to not make the playoff. But they go 8-0 to begin in the bubble. Devin Booker has that buzzer beater where he falls backwards, and then literally the following season, they go to the NBA Finals. Like, they go from not a playoff team, bubble happens, they go 8-1, and one, and Booker wins the bubble MVP, which, or I guess Damian Lillard won the bubble MVP, but like, Damian Lillard and Devin Booker are regarded as the bubble MVPs. And then literally the next year, they go to the NBA Finals. And part of it is the Western Conference was the weaker conference compared to the East, and part of it was they they benefited from a lot of injuries and were still the best team in the West. They were better than Utah. They were better than the Clippers. They were better than the Lakers. They were better than Denver. They swept Denver out of the playoff, despite the fact Denver didn't have uh, Mike uh, didn't have Jamal Murray for that series. Phoenix was really, really good almost immediately. And so, you know, that's our first introduction to Devin Booker. And the the point I was going to with the statistics is how does Devin Booker statistically compare to the other top shooting guards in the league? So I looked up 
who has taken the most field goals this season in the NBA? And here's the the leaders in the sport in terms of field goal attempts. Luka Doncic, LeBron James, Trey Young, Jason Tatum, Devin Booker, Giannis, Donovan Mitchell. So Devin Booker is fifth in the league in field goals attempted. And if you want to call Luka Doncic a shooting guard, Luka Doncic is the only other player taking as many shots as Devin Booker. So then I went over to that beloved player efficiency rating statistic, and I looked up, of those players who are taking a ton of shots, who is the most efficient in the NBA? And the statistics that I found show that number one is Luka Doncic in in field goals attempted. Luka Doncic is third in efficiency rating. The second person on that list, LeBron James, 21st in efficiency rating. So LeBron's taking a lot of shots. He's not playing efficiently. He's not, I mean, again, player efficiency rating is the statistic that most correlates to what we call most valuable or what we call the eye test. Uh, 18 of the last 21 NBA MVPs led the league in player efficiency rating. And the ones that didn't were narrative based. Like the three that didn't were Russell Westbrook in 2017 over, I believe it was, um, I believe it was LeBron James that year. 2012, Derrick Rose won the MVP because people got fatigue of giving the MVP to LeBron every year. LeBron would have won five in a row based on the statistics that season. And then uh, 2008, Chris Paul led the league in efficiency rating, but Kobe Bryant won the MVP because of narrative-based wanting to get Kobe Bryant his one MVP award. So player efficiency rating every other year for the last 21 years the league leader in efficiency rating has won the mvp some people look at that efficiency rating some people don't it's a statistic that most correlates to what we call the value of a player so 21st is lebron he takes the second most shots trey young third on that list trey young in terms of efficiency rating he comes in all the way i have to scroll a little bit for trey young trey young comes in all the way down at 32 in player efficiency rating, right around with Bradley Beal and with uh, Kyrie Irving and with Desmond Bain of the Memphis Grizzlies. So Trey Young takes a lot of shots, hasn't been most efficient. We know the the problems with uh, Atlanta's offense this year. Atlanta, in terms of offensive rating, is 20th in the NBA because their entire offense is Trey Young. Everything their offense is doing is centered around Trey Young. He's taken the third most shots in the league, and they have the 20th ranked offense. And Trey Young is 32nd in efficiency rating. So it's all going south for Atlanta. Meanwhile, Luka Doncic is taking a lot of shots, has a high efficiency rating, and Dallas still has an average record in the sport. Jason Tatum, he comes in at ninth in the, or sorry, Jason Tatum comes in at 12th in player efficiency rating despite having the fourth most shot attempts and then you get to Devin Booker who is fifth in shot attempts and 22nd in player efficiency rating and so what this correlates to me is not that Devin Booker has taken his game to another level like I said if you look at 2021 Devin Booker versus 2022 Devin Booker basically year over year putting up the same statistics he didn't make this big leap after going to the NBA finals The Suns were the team that put it all together and became the number one team in the Western Conference last year and then threw up on themselves once they got to Dallas 
and Luka and Jalen Brunson in the conference final, or sorry, in the second round of the playoffs to get to the matchup with the Warriors that I still think Phoenix would have beaten the Warriors hand over hand. I don't think it would have been a blowout, but I think Phoenix would have beat Golden State had they matched up in the Western Conference Finals. Phoenix would have played Boston in the NBA Finals. Boston might have won that series, might have not, but basically Phoenix was ready to take that next step, and then they threw up on themselves in that series against Dallas, culminating with the Game 7 that was like 50-point loss. One of the worst defeats that has ever happened in in recent playoff memory for a team of the caliber of the Phoenix Suns. And so when I was going through the statistics this season and my mind was pe- my curiosity was piqued by seeing Devin Booker put up four of the 12 highest scoring games of the season and seeing Devin Booker be top 10 in points despite the fact that his shooting percentage is not that over the top. Like Devin Booker's three-point shooting percentage this season is hanging around 36%. That's a good to not great. I mean, that's a that's a good three point shooter at thirty six percent. That's that's a good three point shooter by the volume that he's taking three point shots at. I mean, he's averaging six point four three pointers per game. So by volume, shooting thirty six percent is really good. But then when you look at his numbers in the true shooting percentage category, uh, again among starters. You're looking at Devin Booker being behind. Um, Devin Booker, in terms of true shooting percentage, is behind players such as Donovan Mitchell. Devin Booker is behind James Harden. He's behind Kevin Herter of the Sacramento Kings. Got to shout out Kevin Herter. He's behind Bradley Beal. He's behind Desmond Bain. He's hanging around where Paul George is in terms of true shooting percentage. And so what this suggests to, to answer my long-winded question after 30 minutes, Devin Booker is putting up gigantic statistics, and it's not correlating to improved performance. It's correlating to higher usage rate in the Phoenix Suns offense, which I think is built out of necessity. And when they get to the playoffs, if everyone is healthy, it will correct itself, or they will get to the playoffs, and Devin Booker will have this gigantic usage rate, and they will be bounced out by one of the many teams in the middle of the Western Conference. And for the sake of entertainment and the sake of rivalries, I sure hope it's either the Mavericks or the Pelicans or the Grizzlies that end up matching up against the Suns because those seem to be the keen rivals or the teams that have a, uh, a bit of a pushback against the Suns. And so for entertainment value, if this is going to be the Devin Booker show and that's how the Suns are going to fade from being a top team in the West the last three seasons to now just being another team in the West, which I think is the trajectory Phoenix is on given all of the turmoil we talked about from Chris Paul to DeAndre Ayton to Jay Crowder to Robert Sarver to the recent report today by Baxter Holmes, which by the way, there's a link in the description to this episode. If you want to read the full story, I encourage you to check it out. We've been following that story going back to uh, 2021. All of that combined with the natural ebbs and flows of having a second all-star who's 38 years old and dealing with injuries and having a center who has beef with the coach and everything that's happening chemistry-wise with them. All of that is leading to the Suns being a very good team, but also just another team in the Western Conference, like the Grizzlies, the Pelicans, the Nuggets being the best teams in the Western Conference. 
and being better than the Phoenix Suns is the most likely outcome. And I would throw Dallas in that group too. I think Dallas is going to be a team that surpasses Phoenix at some point soon here. And I think that's really fascinating to watch because Phoenix is now in the face of all of this leaning more on Devin Booker to be a higher part of the offense. And we've seen this formula before, which is Devin Booker can put up gigantic statistics and also they will lose the game because of how high his usage rate is. And that's that's how I feel reaffirmed in my point about Devin Booker being an all-star caliber player, a perennial all-star, a Hall of Famer, and also not a superstar like Giannis, like Jokic, like Joel Embiid, like Anthony Davis for a time, like what Jason Tatum is about to become. And the, and the reason that's the case is because Devin Booker is a very, very good player, and the Phoenix Suns are able to win with him as their best player under the best of circumstances. And the best of circumstances may have just passed them by, and now the circumstances are getting a little bit worse as Devin Booker enters his physical prime. You throw a fourth TD on a dime. You ain't got no fear of any Colts or Dolphins. Josh Allen gets Bills the wins. You want to play the Chiefs and to beat Andy Reid and his schemes, avenging your past mistakes and take the Bills to the big game. Three years, I thought you was phony. Got digs, then you flipped it on me. I was thinking you were Carson Wentz. You made your mark, became an MVP. Deep throws, always looking daunting. Tossed up to Davis and McKenzie. It's hard for teams to deny it. When Allen beats double safety, you keep losing to Mahomes. Sitting on the bench, 13 to go. Overtime coin flips turned up wrong. Makes your season seem so marginal. And this year you'll find a way Gonna get past Kansas City Allen and the Bills are gonna be Super Bowl champs 2023 Oh, I wanna run the ball Don't wanna slide I just wanna dive Send me the call And I'll throw the ball I wanna run the ball Don't wanna slide I'm just gonna dive Send me the call, and I'll throw the ball. You throw a fourth TD on a dime. You ain't got no fear of any Colts or Dolphins. Josh Allen gets Bills the wins. You want to play the Chiefs and to beat Andy Reid and his schemes, avenging your past mistakes and take the Bills to the big game. All right, so I wanted to wait until Tuesday to talk about 
the most entertaining football game of the weekend, which was the Dolphins and the Bills. And the reason I say this was the most entertaining football game of the weekend is because both teams played really well. And both of these teams are top eight teams in the NFL. Like, if if we were to get rid of conferences and we were to get rid of divisions and we were to line up all 32 teams, 1-32, to 32, and put them in the playoffs, this would probably be a second-round playoff matchup. Now, maybe Buffalo's 2 and the Dolphins are 7, or the Dolphins are 8 and the Bills are 1. However you want to point to it, Dolphins at Bills feels like a second-round playoff matchup, a divisional playoff matchup. Two teams that are two of the eight best in the NFL. Both of them do offense really, really well, so that makes it much more interesting. And both teams played really, really well against each other, even given that it was 23 degrees in Buffalo and they were throwing ice balls at the Miami Dolphins so that people had to, they had to announce over the loudspeaker that if a Dolphins player got hit with an ice ball, it would be a 15-yard penalty on the Buffalo Bills, which created the fun paradox of Dolphins fans throwing snowballs at their own players in order to get a penalty that would ultimately benefit the Dolphins. It's a, it's a very fun game that people were playing on Twitter in the midst of that Dolphins and Bills game Saturday night. But there are a couple of things I wanted to talk about, and I'll start out with Miami because I think we've talked about Miami three times, and this will be the third time in four weeks that we're bringing up the Dolphins after they played the 49ers and they struggled there. Uh, the week before, they they won a big game, and I was talking about the development of Tua and what that offense has started to look like. And the thing that you've heard me talk about with the Dolphins is Miami is a team built on the big plays And you can see the success of the offense based on take away the big plays. What else does it look like? And it's not to say that the big plays aren't incredibly valuable. They are. To see if they're executing their offense correctly, it's important to take away the big plays and then evaluate the rest of the game based on its merits. So when we were doing, and and by the way, immense credit to them for having a big play every single week. I talked about going into the Buffalo Bills game The Miami Dolphins last four touchdowns going into the game against uh, their their four touchdowns in their games against the 49ers and the Chargers, which both ended in losses. The Dolphins four touchdowns were 75 yards. I might butcher these numbers a little bit, but it was 75 yards, 68 yards, 45 yards. And the scoop touchdown by Tariq Hill that went 58 yards off a fumble. And Tariq Hill didn't get the yards for it, which hurt my fantasy team. But they had a touchdown 45 yards, 58 yards, 60-something yards, I think 68, and 75 yards. Those were their four touchdowns. They were all big plays. Other than those big plays, some of them bullshit, some of them not, the Dolphins had a total of six points. They had two field goal drives, three punts, four turnovers. Uh, It might actually be more than three punts. I think it might be like six punts if you combine the two games. It was three punts in the 49ers game, but you had two field goal drives, four turnovers, and a whole bunch of punts and some not converting on fourth down situations. And so Miami's offense had not been executing well, and you didn't need me to tell you that. You could look at the numbers for Tua and see him completing 46% of his passes or If you're watching the games, the two misses that he had to waddle on the first drive against the 49ers and the incompletion he underthrew Gusecki 
and then um against the Chargers not converting that third down I think it was in the second quarter of the game where he had a third down wide open and he just straight under through a receiver I, it might have been um might have been Craycraft I don't remember who it was it was one of their secondary receivers but uh, maybe it was uh what is it Thornton is Thornton on the on the Dolphins now um, but basically what's interesting is that Miami was not executing their offense and their running game was poor and then they get to this Buffalo game. Again, Buffalo has a really good defense, and the running game is fantastic for Miami. Raheem Mostert ended up having 136 yards, and even if you take away the gigantic run that helped him get to um, the 8-yard average for the game, even if you take away the gigantic run, he still finishes with uh, 70 rushing yards on 16 carries, which is over 4 yards per carry, which is really good. That's above league average. Uh, Salvan Ahmed had three first down runs of over uh, eight yards, finished the game with 7.2 yards per carry. As a team, the Dolphins finished with 7.5 yards per carry. And like I said, if you take away the one gigantic run by Raheem Mostert and call that a big play, they still averaged 4.8 yards per carry, which again is above league average, averaging 4.8 yards per play by and removing the outliers which is you know the one negative two yard run and the 167 yard run if you remove the outliers 4.8 yards per carry is a really really good number so the dolphins are running the ball effectively in this football game two is not completing all the passes and they're leading to punts but he's also not turning the ball over like he did against the 49ers to the point where the turnovers wipe out the giant plays and so because he's not turning the ball over, the giant plays still keep them in the game. And what were the giant plays in this one? 67-yard run by Mostert, I mentioned a second ago. Coming out of the second half, 67-yard touchdown to Jalen Waddle. Then they march a drive down the field, and it's a 20-yard touchdown for Tariq Hill. And then the defense forces a fumble of the Bills that leads to a field goal. And all of a sudden, that's 17 points plus the Mostert play that set up a score. So you're looking at 17 points on big plays and turnovers that end up keeping you in the game. And as long as you don't make the mistakes, that's a 17-point advantage against a Buffalo Bills team that can basically do whatever they want against your defense. Your defense is not good at stopping pretty much anything, specifically scoring, and the Buffalo Bills offense basically did whatever they wanted against the Miami defense, particularly in that first half. There was a drive. The first scoring drive for the Bills was three plays, 74 yards, and each play was like 20-plus yards. There was no like one bomb play. It was like 25 yards, 32 yards, 17 yards, and they're in the end zone. Like, Buffalo could basically do whatever they wanted against the Miami defense. And that's the reason why Buffalo was a favorite in that game, given that Miami is capable of big plays. It's why Buffalo's a better team than Miami, is because Buffalo's offense can basically do whatever they want against a bad defense. And the Dolphins have a bad defense this season. It's currently ranked 25th in scoring in the NFL. The Dolphins have a bad defense and a really great offense. And because of that, they are possibly going to win their first playoff game in 22 years. I don't say that to denigrate the Dolphins. The Dolphins are a top eight team in the NFL. And if they get to match up against the Titans, they might be able to beat them on the road in a wild card game. Or if they match up against the Bengals, might be a little more difficult, but still doable. So, 
bringing it to the Buffalo side of things, Buffalo, at the end of that game, fought off the Dolphins by having a huge defensive stand. And we could, like I said, Buffalo could basically do whatever they wanted against the Dolphins' offense. And the reason that this wasn't a larger victory for Buffalo was just because of that fumble that was forced by Jalen Phillips. Turnovers are the thing that are going to be the demise of the Buffalo Bills if they are to not win the Super Bowl this year. But after Buffalo punts to start the game, here's what Buffalo's drives go. Four plays, 75 yards, one minute, 54 seconds, touchdown. 12 plays, 75 yards, six and a half minutes, touchdown. 12 plays, 82 yards, three minutes. They ran 12 plays in three minutes, touchdown. That is the de- the textbook definition of we can do whatever we want against your team. Also, you know what Josh Allen statistically was? The leading rusher on the team and the leading passer. He had four passing touchdowns. 304 yards, no turnovers, the highest passer rating of the day until I believe it was, uh, who, who played in the afternoon? Someone in the afternoon broke the number, but at the time, Josh Allen had the highest passer rating among the first 10 games. When you can go four plays, 75 yards in two minutes, but the first play was a zero yard gain. So when you basically go three plays, 75 yards in two minutes, Then you go 12 plays, 75 yards in six and a half minutes. And then you go 12 plays, 82 yards in three minutes, all ending in touchdowns. You can basically do whatever you want against that defense. And that's what Buffalo did. And then the second half comes around and Buffalo starts punting the ball over and over and over again. It's like, wait, what is happening right now? Why is is Buffalo all of a sudden incapable of moving the ball down the field? And the reason is their running game is shit. And they tried to keep running the football. And then they got the ball in Miami territory. And then a penalty ended up pushing them back. But penalties ended up being the the downfall of one of the drives. But basically, Buffalo's like, their running running game's really bad. (laughs) And Josh Allen had to kind of step up to win the game at the end. Because they went from doing whatever they wanted on offense to, ah, shit, we can't run the football. Because our team, we have a really, really good offense. And Josh Allen is our number one running back. But if we try and give it to Singletary, it is is not working. And then they get to the end of the game. And they basically get back to doing whatever they want. Which reminds me again of that final drive for Buffalo. Which is James Cook, 16-yard run. That opens, once they got that one big run by James Cook. um, If you remember correctly, this was with uh, a, this was when they were down eight. And they had just fumbled the football, and the Dolphins kicked the field goal off the fumble. Like, their defense got a big stand, and then they moved down the field. Once that James Cook uh, play happened, everything opened up for them. And then Buffalo's defense got a huge stand. And if you remember, the last two seasons, Buffalo has lost to Kansas City in the playoffs because their defense has not gotten big stands. Now, they got killed by Kansas City in 2020 but if you remember correctly they were winning that game seven to zero Kansas City had muffed a punt that led to a Buffalo touchdown and after that I think they they got they gave up five unanswered touchdowns and their offense couldn't get anything going quick enough to compete with Kansas City and that was in the midst of Kansas City winning 26 of 27 games that Mahomes played like they ran into peak Kansas City during that 2020 season But if you remember, they were up 7-0 in that game. And then, obviously, last year in the playoff, 
We saw Buffalo put up 34 points. They had the lead with 13 seconds to play and a minute 13 seconds to play. Like, the defensive stop was the reason that they don't beat Kansas City, even though they kind of outplay Kansas City. And then in this Dolphins game with a similar circumstance where they have to come back from eight points down in a tie game, they get the ball and Tua completes a pass to Tariq Hill and then they go into Buffalo territory. It's first and 10 at the Buffalo 41. They go one yard run for Mostert, negative three yard pass play to Tariq Hill, incomplete pass to Jalen Waddell. And that defensive stand forces a punt in Buffalo territory. And then Buffalo ends up going down the field from the seven yard line to win the game. Because again, Buffalo could do whatever they wanted on offense once they finally opened up the field. And Buffalo from the 13 yard line ended up going 15 yards to Gabe Davis, second and eight. 30, uh, six-yard completion to Stephon Diggs. Two-yard run, six-yard run, five-yard play to Isaiah McKenzie. Eight-yard com- run to, De- to Devin Singletary. Seven-yard run to Devin Singletary. Four-yard run to Devin Singletary. They basically marched down the field. There was that one pass interference play where um, I, I think it was McKenzie had a guy beat deep. But basically... Buffalo just marched down the field slowly but steadily, milked the time off the clock, and won the game on the last play with the field goal. And that was that was how they wanted to run the, the, the final six minutes of the game out. And the defensive stand was the difference there because if not for that defensive stand, Miami wins that football game. And Miami steals another game from Buffalo. They probably won't win the division, but they're still within striking distance of the five seed. And... A Buffalo team that probably should be 13-1 and this season if they don't lose that game to Miami, which they threw back, and they don't lose that game to um, Minnesota, which like so many things had to go wrong. Buffalo, who is the best team in the NFL by leaps and bounds, I think Kansas City and, and Eagles are the only team that matchups could dictate that they could catch Buffalo on a bad day. Or sorry, Buffalo on a good day. Buffalo on a bad day could lose to anyone, but... Buffalo on a good day, they are the best team in the NFL. And this is the explanation for why I feel like this year's Buffalo team, this is the first time I can say Buffalo is a team that can beat Kansas City because they have superior players to Kansas City. Is that defensive stand they had against Tua and the Dolphins and that defensive stand they had after giving up 29 points. Combined with the fact that against a bad defense, which right now Kansas City classifies as a bad defense, Buffalo can basically do whatever they want against those defenses. Kansas City's not as bad as as the um, the Miami Dolphins. They're not that far off when it comes to not great defense. I think Kansas City's ranked 17th in DVOA right now, if I remember correctly. Let's see how those uh, let's see how those DVOA numbers have updated in the last week on defense. Kansas City is uh, let's see 20. Okay, so they're in the 20s now. Oh, actually, Miami is ahead of Kansas City now. So there you go. Kansas City is a worse defense than Miami in terms of DVOA ranking. So if Buffalo can do whatever they want against the Kansas City defense, their defense is good enough to contain Patrick Mahomes. And on a good day, Buffalo is a better team than Kansas City and a better team than any other team in the NFL. And I think that this game against the Dolphins, which was really well executed by Miami, is a great example of why that is the case. Because this was a very entertaining football game. Both teams played very good football. 
and Buffalo was still able to beat Kansas City or able to beat Miami coming out at the end of the game. And I think that this game script very closely mirrors what a Kansas City versus Buffalo playoff game will look like in Buffalo. Not that Kansas City's offense isn't more prolific than Miami's. It is. They can basically do whatever they want against pretty much any team in the league. At the same time, they are susceptible to making mistakes. And their defense is, according to the statistic, about as bad as Miami's. Um, I think there's a very real possibility that Buffalo matched up at home against Kansas City will be a similar type of favorite to what we saw against Miami and might be a similar type of team compared, uh, might follow a similar type of game script as they did against Miami. We'll see what happens when we get to the playoffs. I'm so freaking excited to watch both of these teams continue playing. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We have episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up coming at you on some Sundays. Leave a five-star review. Leave those downloads. They are all greatly, greatly appreciated. And we will talk to you tomorrow want all of you to take it easy and enjoy on your way out the door our Buffalo Bills parody song because in the battle between Buffalo and Miami Buffalo wins which means we get to play the little Nas X parody song instead of the T-Pain Miami Dolphins fight song so enjoy this victory Tuesday Buffalo Bills fans you have the best team in the NFL You throw a fourth TD on a dime. You ain't got no fear of any Colts or Dolphins. Josh Allen gets Bills the wins. You want to play the Chiefs and to beat Andy Reid and his schemes, avenging your past mistakes and take the Bills to the big game. Three years, I thought you was phony. Got digs, then you flipped it on me. I was thinking you were Carson Wentz. You made your mark, became an MVP. Deep throws, always looking daunting. Tossed up to Davis and McKenzie. It's hard for teams to deny it. When Allen beats double safety, you keep losing to Mahomes. Sitting on the bench, 13 to go. Overtime coin flips turned up wrong. Makes your season seem so marginal. And this year you'll find a way Gonna get past Kansas City Allen and the Bills are gonna be Super Bowl champs 2023 Oh, I wanna run the ball Don't wanna slide I just wanna dive Send me the call And I'll throw the ball I wanna run the ball Don't wanna slide I'm just gonna dive Send me the call, and I'll throw the ball. You throw a fourth TD on a dime. You ain't got no fear of any Colts or Dolphins. Josh Allen gets Bills the wins. You want to play the Chiefs and to beat Andy Reid and his schemes, avenging your past mistakes and take the Bills to the big game.